0: Vanessa. Vanessa. Good morning, everyone. So glad to have you here to worship with us this morning. You know, I heard uh, the the president of Moody uh, on the radio this morning, and he was preaching, and he was saying that uh, an integral way of praying that's mentioned in James is that we praise the Lord with music. And he was making the point, he says, you know, some people say, ah, I, I'll... I'll miss the music and I'll just come for the preaching. He says, That's, the, the music is not a good time for you to find a parking spot. It's a good time to be here to praise the Lord. So I'm glad you people are here now and you guys can all pat yourself on the back. Good job. So um, the music that we picked this morning, we're planning to have fun with it. We picked, I picked uh, music that I thought all of our visitors would know. And we're going to have a great time. Feel free to stand up, clap, jump up and down, whatever you want. You have permission to do that. Those of you that are joining us online, you also can clap, jump up and down. You can do whatever you want. We're glad that you're with us as well. So let's stand together and let us sing. So this first song is a hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And I was originally thinking, we can do it like it's always been done. And I said, no, we're going to put a little country into it. So... Try to keep up. Let's sing. Here we go. One. going days of elijah
1: Morning, as we gather together to to celebrate and rejoice together, that we to come together and worship our God. And if you are visiting, my name is Tim. I'm the senior pastor here at Three Lake Evangelical Free Church, and we are glad that you are here with us at the church. Like we talk about, really want to be about three things: we talk about we talk about reaching people with the gospel, growing to be like Christ, and serving others. So this morning, following service. We're going to have a meeting here at church talking about small groups, and small groups, we want it to be about doing two of those things. Right? We want it to be a way that we can spread out, go out from the church, be in our communities, in our neighborhoods, and like be present there. It's a way for people to experience some of church life without coming into the church. It's a way to reach people, but then also, small groups are a way for us to grow, to be like Christ. And so we want to really drive and push on those things as we Look at what small group can look like. So, if you are interested in being part of a small group here through the church, we would encourage you and invite you to be part of that this morning following the service back in this room. A couple other things. Uh, one is to talk about the other thing to talk about being about at the church is serving others. One opportunity to do that is through serving in the nursery. If we need looking for people who will serve and work in the nursery. Um, and so, if you are you're interested in doing that? You can fill it on the fill it on the connect card in front of you and drop it in the box, or you can talk to Amy Baumit and she will hook you up. Uh, a couple other a couple other things. Um, one, though, so on August twenty eighth, we will have our next congregational meeting here at the church. We invite you, especially if you're a member, to be part of that. But even if you're not a member, you're welcome to come and attend and as part of that, we will vote on some new members whose names are on the back of your bulletin. Um, so we would encourage you to um, be part of that. And then downstairs, there's also a place to sign up for Sunday school for the fall. So if you know your child will be involved in Sunday school here at the church, um, there's a place to sign up to help us get a sense of what numbers look like. So We'd appreciate it if you would sign your child up downstairs. With that, I'm, I'm looking forward to continuing to worship with you. Before we get back to music, let's worship by going to our God in prayer. Father, we thank you for the chance to gather together as your people in the place you provided for us. Thank You for the work You've done in each life represented here to bring us to this place to have this opportunity to join together in worship of You. To bring together together to hear Your Word and to become more like Jesus. Pray that You would be at work in our heart and in our minds this morning to, to spur us to worship. Pray that the words that we sing would serve to bring you glory and praise that the word we hear from your word would spur us to become more like Jesus to live lives that glorify and honor you Father we thank you for all the good work you do in each one of our lives the things we so often take for granted Praise you for all the way you blessed us, but I have to pray for those who are, are walking through challenges and hard times right now, whether that 's physical illness or emotional pain or spiritual struggle, but that you would be at work even in the midst of dark moments we may have, that you would show yourself faithful. You should have to be the great comforter, the great healer. You would give us peace where it's needed, that you would give endurance where it's needed. That even if we walk through challenges, that we walk through struggle, that we'd be able to glorify you even in the midst of those trials, that you would be at work bring about your glory even in hard times father as we think of all that you've done for us would it spur our heart now to continue to worship you praise in jesus name amen
2: so what did you do i tried to walk away but he wouldn't stop pushing me so i pushed him so hard he fell down and that's why you were punished did you expect something different but even Torah says eye for eye why should I be punished too yes but that is for a judge you are hardly in a court of law and you all of you are to be special you are to act differently than others
3: you tell us to be gentle but Rabbi Josiah said Messiah would lead us against the Romans that he would be a great military leader
2: It is important to respect your teachers and honor your parents. And Rabbi Josiah is a smart man, but many times smart men lack wisdom. Is there anything in scripture that says Messiah will be a great military leader? There are many things about scripture that you cannot understand yet, and that is okay. That is fine. You have many years ahead of you. God does not reveal all things at once. But children, what if many of the things that our people think about how we are to behave and how we are to treat one another are wrong? You want things to be fair. When someone wrongs you, you want to right it. And you know who else loves justice? But what does the Lord say in the law of Moses? About justice and vengeance vengeance is mine yes very good very good boys pay attention she doesn't even go to Torah class huh (laughs) the Lord loves justice but maybe it is not ours to handle do you remember when David had the chance to kill King Saul who was evil to him but he didn't Saul was God's anointed and it was not the right time for justice. And God says he will have compassion on his people when... What? Let's see if someone who studies this at school is learning. Huh? Hmm?
4: When their strength is gone?
2: Yes, very good. So, maybe we let God provide the justice. Hmm? Maybe we handle these things in a different way. Not trying to be the strongest all the time.
3: Even Messiah?
2: He will have to see. But do not expect Messiah to arrive in Jerusalem on a tall horse carrying weapons. And he will be most pleased with those of you who are the peacemakers.
3: Where were you yesterday?
2: I had to stay in town later on. There was a woman who needed my help.
3: Did you build something for
5: her?
2: no you remember when I said that I have a job that is bigger than my trade there is a woman who has had much pain in her life and she was in trouble so I helped her
3: is she your friend
2: she is now and I have chosen her and others and more soon to join me in traveling
4: do they know you
2: not yet
5: But what if they don't like you?
2: (laughs) Many won't. This is my reason for being here. I still don't understand. What is your reason for being here? I'm telling you this because even though you are children and the elders in your life have lived longer many times, adults need the faith of children And if you hold on to this faith Really tightly Someday soon You will understand all of what I am saying to you But you ask an important question, Abigail What is my reason for being here? And the answer is for all of you The spirit of the Lord is upon me He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Isaiah. Isaiah. I have loved spending this time with you. You are all so very special. And I hope that my next students ask the same questions you do and that they listen to my answers. But I suspect they do not have the understanding you do. And I hope that when the time comes, They will tell others about me like you have.
0: You'll see how that connects to the sermon later. In case you don't know what that was, that was from the current TV streaming series, The Chosen. It tells the story of Jesus from the perspective and with the eyes of those who he impacted. It's extremely well done extremely powerful I'm a big fan so if you aren't already into that just download the chosen app and if it's an app that asks you to pay something that's the wrong one but it's totally free and you'll enjoy it so let's continue our worship um, together stand if you can and let's worship the Lord
1: Thank you. We praise you for sending Jesus to be the one who was worthy. And when we, through our sin, were entirely unworthy to be in your presence, to come before you, to be with you in eternal life. That you sent Jesus to be the one who was worthy in our place we could have the hope of eternal life. He is worthy of honor and glory, and we pray that our our lives would reflect that truth. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you're a child age 4 through 7, you can head downstairs to Children's Church if you want to do that. Speaking of kids age four through seven, as many of you know, my wife Vanessa and I, we have four kids between the ages of six months and seven years old. And so Vanessa and I will talk somewhat frequently about the different stages each kid goes through as they kind of make their way through the early childhood years. And there's always like, certain things that are endearing about each stage, and there's other things that are, are challenging about each stage, right? Like for example, our our son is Elijah, is six months old, which means that he's like constantly becoming more engaging and interactive and fun to play with and that's great. Right. Right. But it also means that he's rapidly approaching what I think is probably the most challenging and exhausting stage that we've gone through so far. Right. Like it's a stage I like to call like, I can move around but I have no sense of personal safety. Which, admittedly, is not like the greatest, catchiest name in the world, but you know, it is what it is. It's just—it's an exhausting stage. Like, to be constantly chasing them, I should really be like start training myself now to just practice saying "stop" and "no" like hundreds of times each day because right? it's, it's coming soon. Okay. Another thing that kind of constantly changing with our kids as they get older is. It's their desire and their willingness to, to do things for themselves. That so the youngest aged, obviously, like they can't do anything. But then if they if they grow, they start to go through this sometimes frustrating two-part cycle, right? Where like on the one hand they insist on doing things for themselves that they cannot do. And on the other hand, they they refuse to do things that they are entirely capable of doing. So like like Our, our two-year-old, like, she will insist on like, pouring the milk from the full gallon of milk by herself into her cereal, right? but then she'll want me to spoon-feed her said cereal. Like, like No, like, let's flip those around. Right? Right? But the one thing that hasn't changed, at least so far, and that I hope will never change in our kids, is that when they have a, a genuine need, right? like a real genuine need, when their safety is at that risk, when they recognize that they're really in trouble, like they don't hesitate to to call out for help. And when they call out for help, they don't doubt for a second that we will do everything we can as parents to help them. Right? Like, like if you've been a parent of young children, you like you know the difference between the like I'm tired and whiny cry and the like I really need genuine help cry. Again. For me, like nothing will spur me to action faster than to hear that like, genuine I-need-help cry. And when our kids cry out for help, with that, with that genuine cry for help, right, they, don't, they don't stop and consider whether they've done enough to deserve that help. Right? Even if they've gotten themselves into whatever trouble because of some kind of disobedience, they still don't hesitate to cry out for help. They don't question if we will respond. They have this like, inherent trust, as they showed that like, we will help them simply because they're our kids, and because they're our kids, we love them. They, they recognize their need for help, and so they ask us for help, and they trust that we will help them. And in the passage we come through today in the, the book of Luke, Jesus tells us that we should have that kind of same attitude towards God. In fact, Jesus tells us that entrance into the kingdom of God and eternal life belong to those who humbly recognize their need for God. And so, we're in Luke chapter 18 this morning, we're looking at verses 15 through 30. If you have a Bible, I invite you have to turn there; otherwise, the verses will be on the screen as well. But Jesus tells us that the kingdom belongs to those who humbly recognize their need for God. And to drive this point home, he's going to give us a a positive example of what this looks like and a negative example of what this doesn't look like. He's going to show us first what it looks like to humbly recognize our need for God. And then he's going to show us someone who thinks that they can earn their way into into the kingdom of God on their own merit. Then after Jesus gives us those examples, he's going to show us that the need for help entering the kingdom is universal. And that only God can ultimately meet that need.
5: Right.
1: So this morning we're going to walk through this passage, looking at those four things: a positive example, a negative example, a universal need, and a divine solution. With that in mind, let's look at this passage together, starting in verse 15. The people were also bringing babies to Jesus for Him to place His hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. So the laying on of hands by a rabbi was a common way to receive a blessing from, from the rabbi in that time. Right? So parents were bringing their children to Jesus, hoping that he would lay their hands on them and receive, give, give them a, a blessing. But the disciples, they're, they're having none of it. Right? They're rebuking the people who bring the children to Jesus. Right? Which if you step and think about it, maybe a little bit, Surprising to us. We live in a culture that by and large celebrates children. We live in a culture where, at least until COVID, like one of the hallmarks of a, a presidential campaign was the candidate like, kissing babies. Like, can you imagine how bad it would look right, if one of like, a presidential candidate's aides like, started rebuking people who were bringing the baby to, G, to the candidate to be kissed? Like it would not go well that would be a very short campaign right? that 's what the disciples're doing here and just just think of all the ways we celebrate babies in the the pregnancy process, especially in this era of social media like right? the first like you have to have like the carefully crafted birth announcement that goes on Facebook and wherever else right then you have to have the the carefully coordinated gender reveal party right? then there 's baby showers then there 's Newborn pictures. I saw this person online who charged $1,900 for like a photo service that documented the entire labor and delivery process. Like, and people pay it apparently. Like, it's crazy, right? And, like, and then there are these endless like babies first fill-in-the-blank moments, right? Baby first Christmas, baby first Eve. Like, we have all these things. Like, first birthday parties are a huge deal. Like, the point being, like, as a culture. Pregnancy and babies, at least wanted pregnancy and babies, like are, are celebrated. But that wasn't the case in Jesus' day. Not that people didn't want to have babies, because they did. Right? But they wanted to have babies only as a means to an end. One commentator put it this way. He says, In that time, childhood was an unavoidable and uncelebrated interim until the young are mature enough to bear children and contribute to the workforce. One will search ancient literature in vain for sympathy toward the young, comparable to that shown them by Jesus in this passage. In that day, it was common for children to only be valued because one day they would grow up to have children of their own, thereby propagating the family line and join the workforce. And so because that was the cultural view of children at that time, like the disciples didn't think that Jesus should be wasting his time laying his hands on children. But Jesus didn't see it that way. Instead we read, Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child, will never enter it. So here, Jesus gives us little children as a, a positive example of what it means to humbly receive the kingdom of God. But of course, that raises an important question. Namely, what does it mean to receive the kingdom of God like a little child? There's lots of attributes of little children that we probably don't want to emulate. So what is there in here that we should be emulating? And lots of suggestions have been made over the years. One of the most common answers is that to receive the kingdom like a child means to receive it with with a simple faith that's free of doubt. That you should receive the kingdom the way a young child receives the word of their parents as irrefutable truth. But then as we read the New Testament, we see Jesus being tender towards people who, who struggle with doubt. Right? You think, of, think of Thomas, who after the resurrection goes on to say, like, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And when Jesus shows up in person a, a week later, And talk to Thomas, he doesn't say, like, Thomas, Thomas, like, don't you remember what I said about childlike faith? Like, that doubt wasn't very childlike of you. Like he doesn't rebuke him for it. Instead, he says, I put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And so when Jesus tells us to receive the kingdom of God like a little child, I don't think he means primarily that we should receive it free of doubt or receive it without asking hard questions. Instead, as I alluded to in the introduction, I think what Jesus primarily means is that when we are to receive the kingdom like a child, he means that we are put to receive the kingdom of God humbly, right? that we should be fully aware of our need for God as we receive the kingdom. We receive the kingdom by being utterly aware of our dependence on someone other than ourselves. Like we enter eternal life knowing that there is nothing we can do in our own power to merit life on our own. We enter the kingdom Humbly. This also makes sense of the the context that Luke places this passage in. In the passage immediately before this, Jesus told the parable of two men who, who went to the temple to pray. And the first man was the Pharisee who prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But that was the first man who was clearly not humble. And there's the second man who was a tax collector, who are told could not even look up to heaven, but beat his breath and pray simply, "God, have mercy on me, a sinner." And Jesus tells us that the tax collector, the humble one, who went home justified before God. And He goes on to say, "For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted." The so Luke here is already in the midst of a section where the focus is on the importance of humility. And now he uses children as this positive example of what childlike humility looks like. Right? When it comes to like having their needs met by a loving parent, like children don't sit and think they have to do something to earn it. Like My kids, I hope, don't sit and think, like, I wonder if I... Clean my room well enough to earn dinner tonight. Right? Like, or I wonder if I was I was well behaved enough to get to sleep in my bed tonight. Like they don't wonder those things. Right? Or conversely, like if one of my kids gets themselves into a, a dangerous situation because they broke a rule, because they disobeyed, they don't fail to cry out for help. Right? They don't fear that we won't help them because of their disobedience. Like kids trust their parents, to take care of them, simply because they're their parents. Not because they've done anything to earn their parents' love. And that should be our attitude and our relationship with God as well. There is nothing we can do to earn His favor. There is nothing we bring to the table. We need Him to meet our most basic need. We need Him for eternal life. And we trust Him to meet that need because through faith in Jesus, we have become His children. Not because of everything we bring to the table. And that sense of our need, that, that sense of humility that comes with knowing that we can offer nothing should impact on how we live the rest of our lives. It should impact how we interact with others around us. We should be humble people, knowing that there's nothing great about us, but it's only because of what God has done in and through us that we have anything to offer. And conversely, there's those who, who think that they can earn God's favor. There are those who, in their pride, think that they can earn their way into the kingdom of God on their own merit. And we see an example of that in verses 18 and 19. In verse 18, we read, A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one is good except God alone. And so in saying that, when asking the question, why do you call me good, Jesus is not denying that he is good. He's not saying that he's not the Son of God. that, In fact, he is God incarnate. But he knows that this man who's asking the question doesn't recognize his divinity. And so if this man just sees Jesus as another teacher. If that's the case, then he shouldn't be calling him good because only God is good. This is that interesting setup for the rest of the story. Because as we'll see as we move forward here, this man is about to plead his own goodness. And hears Jesus telling him that there's no one good except God. So after that quick aside, Jesus then returns to answer the man's question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you know the command. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder You shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. What's interesting about this verse, that Jesus here chooses five of the ten commandments to kind of highlight. If you look at those five that he chooses, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, honor your father and mother. He chooses those five. If you think about those five and compare them to the other five commandments, one of the things you'll notice about these five commandments is that they're the five that are most externally obvious. Right? Like, like I know Jesus will tell us like, that to hate someone is to violate the commandment against murder. Or to have lust in your heart is to violate the commandment against adultery. Right? But according to like, the common Jewish understanding at that time, like, what these commandments required was pretty cut and dried. Like, either you murdered or you didn't. Either you stole or you didn't. Either you did each of these things, or you didn't do them. So this man can say, like, look, I've none none of those things. I have kept though, in verse 21. All these I have kept since I was a boy. Okay? And so at this point, I feel like this guy should have sensed that this is a bit of a setup. Like, Jesus had started out by saying, there's no one good but God. And then Jesus selectively chooses five of the Ten Commandments to highlight. He chooses the five that it's most likely this man can be able to, is able to claim that he is kept. It seems like the man should have been able to see the jaws of the trap closing. Right? But he doesn't. Right? Instead he just says, shh, that it? In that case, it's like, I'm good. But of course, that's not it. Verse 22, Jesus says, When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then, come follow me. It's need to be careful here. Jesus is not teaching salvation by poverty. The Bible teaches us that salvation is by grace alone, through faith in Jesus alone. Not by grace alone, through poverty alone. So Jesus is not saying that it's universally true that if you just sell everything, you will be saved. Jesus is getting at something far deeper here. This is not ultimately a test of the man's good works. but It's a probing of the man's heart. It's an examination of his fundamental allegiance. What Jesus is saying is, look, you've, you've kept... So five commandments that are really focused on outward behavior. And that that's great. But what about the first commandment? What about the commandments that are more concerned with your heart than your action? The first commandment is you shall have no other God before me. Have you kept that one? Jesus is really saying is you need to choose your God. Is that your God, Yahweh, or is it wealth? You say you've kept all the commandments, but have you really? Like, you look good on the outside. Your actions look great. But how is your heart? Does your heart reflect that you're truly following after God and putting God above all else? And we, we see the man's implicit answer to that question in verse 23. When he heard this, he became very sad. Because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? And for this man, he was expecting his outward good behavior to get him into the kingdom. Despite the fact that his heart was crawling with idolatry. He thought the fact that he hadn't committed adultery or the fact that he hadn't stolen or murdered would be enough to earn his way into heaven. Like, he didn't think he actually needed God for this. Which is why he served as a, a negative example of what Jesus is teaching us in this passage. Right? Children, when they, when they find they have a genuine need, right, they don't concoct a list of reasons they, should, they deserve help. Right? They simply ask. Right? But this man recognizes his need, and we know he sees the need, because he starts out by asking, What must I do to inherit eternal life? He knows there's a need there. But then instead of humbly recognizing his need for help, he clings to his his good works and his wealth as a thing that will make him worthy of the kingdom. And so ultimately his his fundamental problem is a, is a problem of idolatry. He loves his wealth and his possessions more than he loves God. He wants a life of comfort and ease and luxury now more than he wants an eternal life in the future. This should serve as a warning to each and every one of us. We may not all be rich like this man, right? though by the world standard, most of us are quite wealthy. But even if we're not rich, we're all prone to make different things into idols. John Calvin would write when he said that the human heart is an idol factory. We all have things that that vie for the devotion of our heart over against God's claims. Tim Keller defines an idol like this. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbed your heart an imagination more than God. Anything that you seek to give you, what only God can give. And we all have those things in our life. The basketball superstar, Kevin Durant, after he won his first NBA championship, gave an interview, and he said this. He said, After winning that championship, I learned that much hadn't changed. I thought winning that championship would fill a certain void. It didn't. Now look, I don't know Kevin Durant, obviously. I don't know all his thoughts and emotions. I don't know the, the inner workings of his heart. But from an outsider perspective, that quote, it sure sounds like he was making winning a championship an idol. That he made a certain level of Career success into the thing that would bring him fulfillment. Once he'd attained it, he found that it didn't fill the hole that he had expected it to fill. It was an idol that he found wanting. We all have those things. The question is like, what? What are your idols? Maybe for you, like the man in this passage, like, is money and wealth your idol? Or maybe for you, like, like for Kevin Durant, some form of career success is your idol. You know, maybe it's personal safety and security. Maybe it's your physical appearance. Maybe it's some form of entertainment. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's fame. Maybe it's relationships. Right? The list of possibilities is endless. Right? But what are your idols? What are the things that you are expecting to fill the hole that only God can fill? If you're not sure what idols may be in your heart, like a few questions that are helpful in maybe exposing some of those idols. Right? So one, like, what do you daydream about? Right? If you just kind of let your mind wander and chase after its wildest dreams, like where does your mind go? Or what what demands your attention? Maybe you've had that moment where you sit down to read your Bible, or you sit down to have a focused time of prayer, and like suddenly, like without fail, something pops into your mind that demands your immediate attention. What is that thing that demands your attention more than your time with God? Or what, what causes you to, to worry? What strikes fear into your heart? Or what causes you to get irrationally angry? The answer to each of those questions can serve to kind of point us toward examining what idols may be lurking in our heart. And so the bad news is, right, we all have this problem. Like we're all like this man of the passage. We all have idols. And Jesus says that anyone who has idols in their heart will not enter the kingdom of God. In verse 25, he says, Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And so he uses here the example of someone who is rich because he has just been speaking to the man who is rich. But he could have filled in any idol there. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than any idolater to enter the kingdom of God. But that's the case. It raises another important question, which is a question that gets asked in verse 26. We read this, Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Right? If, and This question kind of works in two ways. At that time, wealth and possession, they were seen as a sign of a blessing from God. So one of this question works is, like it's a way of saying, like, if even the rich, right, those who are the most blessed by God, can't be saved, what hope do the poor have? And I think that like, the people asked this question, uh, that's what they were thinking. If the rich can't be saved, then what hope do the poor have? But the other way the question works, and the way that I think Jesus understands it when he answers the question, is this, right? If idolatry can keep us out of the kingdom, then who can be saved? If any idolatry can keep us out of the kingdom, then who can be saved? As we said, we all have idolatry in our hearts. We all at times give something other than God the place in our heart that God deserves. So if idolatry can keep you out of the kingdom, then what hope do we have? We all have these idols, and so therefore, the need for help, is the universal need. There is no one who can, by their own moral effort, earn their way into the kingdom of God. Like, you can't earn eternal life through your behavior. You can't get to heaven by being a good person, or even by coming to church enough. Because even if you're the most morally upright, upstanding person, even from the outside, you look... Great. You look perfect outwardly. Even if you keep all the outward-focused commandments, we all have junk in our hearts. We all worship idols. It may even be that your, your identity as a righteous person is the very thing you idolize. We all think thoughts we shouldn't think. We all do seemingly good things from wrong motives. And breaking even one commandment one time is enough to keep you out of the kingdom. Which is bad news. But then Jesus tells us in verse 27 that the good news. Jesus replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Jesus said that though it is impossible for man to enter the kingdom of God in his own power, there is a divine solution. God makes it possible. And then to show that it's possible with God, he, he gives a first-hand evidence in verses 28 through 30. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus said to those who follow Him, that those who put aside their idols, those who make Jesus the thing that's the primary desire of their hearts, those who do that will receive many times as much in this age, and in the age to come, eternal life. Now You may hear that, and you may think, wait a second, I thought you said there's nothing we can do to earn eternal life. Like, leaving home for the sake of the kingdom sounds like something I do. Right? But it's not the, not the action itself that leads to eternal life. Right? It's, what, it's what enables the action that leads to eternal life. Perhaps like the only idol more common than wealth is the relational and physical security that comes from a home surrounded by family. Right? We feel it now in our culture, that how valuable family and home is, but it was especially true in that culture. Family was everything. The family home, the family land was, it was everything. It was the key to a person's welfare. It was the key to a person's security. It was the hub of their most important relationships. Like The home and the family was everything. What could motivate someone to give that up? And the only thing that could possibly cause someone to give all that up is that they trusted someone else with their welfare and their relationships even more. And that's what faith is. It's it's recognizing our need for help. Recognizing our need for our welfare that goes beyond what the family and the home can offer. It's recognizing that a family or wealth or any other idol will never save us. And then faith is then recognizing that and then crying out to God for help. Faith is trusting Jesus with our welfare more than we trust anything else. It is trusting that by following Jesus we'll receive an even better family. In John 1.12 we read, Yet to all who did receive him, that's Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. By believing in Jesus, we become God's children. and God becomes our Father. And all those who have trusted in Him become our brothers and sisters along with us. And so, when God is our Father, when we've believed in Jesus, and therefore God is our Father, then when we find ourselves in trouble, we can be like little children. We can, we can call out for help, knowing that our Father is our only hope. Knowing that we don't have to earn His help, that it doesn't matter what wrong we've done, It doesn't matter what we've done that got us in the trouble in the first place, we can cry out for help, and our Father will answer, not because we've earned it, but because He's our Father and He loves us. That only happens; we only become God's children through faith in Jesus. Only because. We sang earlier that only Jesus was worthy. Only Jesus fully obeyed all those commandments. Only Jesus never had an idol in his life. And yet, despite his perfect life, he went to the cross and he died. He died in our place for our sins. So that by believing in him, we can have our sins forgiven and God can then become our, our Father. When we believe in Jesus, and then the Holy Spirit comes and He changes our hearts. So he causes us to see things differently. And that change of heart, that change of vision allows us to be willing to give up everything to follow after Jesus. If you're here, you've, you've never trusted Jesus. You've never become a child of God through faith in Jesus. I just encourage you to do that. And the, the Jesus is... The way we become a child of God, the way we recognize that we have nothing we can bring to the table, that we are sinful and broken, that our only hope of eternal life is through faith in Jesus. You never trusted him. I urge you to do that. For those of us who are here who have trusted Jesus, a couple things we can take from this passage. First, as we read this, as we read this section of Luke with its focus on humility, let it form you, let it shape you into a more humble person. It's easy to let pride sneak in. It's easy to look at our own behavior and think, I'm better than that person, and I'm way better than that person, like, but like, let the passage remind you that apart from Jesus, we're as hopeless as anyone else. second thing to take from this, right? it's an invitation to examine your heart for idols. And if you find those idols, if you see those idols in your life, the
5: right?
1: great news of the gospel. you don't have to bury them in shame. I like, can try to hide them from everyone else. The hope of the gospel that those idols, that idolatry is already forgiven. You can bring it to Jesus. You can bring it before your Father. You can cry out to Him for help in overcoming that idol because He is your Father. And you can trust that He will come to you and help overcome that idolatry. So let's be a people who are humbly examining ourselves for idols, who model Repentance when we find those idols. And let's let that impact on our lives shape how we live in the world and among people who don't know and believe in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you. That even though our hearts and our minds are prone to loving things more than you, that we're prone to chafing after things more than you, we're prone to taking our own selfish motives more than you, That you do not leave us in our sin. You do not leave us in our idolatry. That you sent Jesus to die on the cross in our place. To make forgiveness of our idolatry possible. To provide help for us still when we struggle with idolatry. Father, as we leave here, as we examine our lives, pray that we would not bury our sin, not hide our sin, not hide our idolatry that revealed itself in our lives, that we would expose it, we would confess it, we would repent of it. We would trust you to overcome that idolatry. Our sin. I pray that you would use our self reflection, use our examination of ourselves to shape us and mold us more and more into the image of your Son. That it would enable us to go live our lives among our friends and our neighbors, declaring your greatness, glorifying you, and pointing others to you and your amazing grace to us in Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. reminder about 1045, we'll meet back up here for that, that small group discussion, if you want to be a part of that. And as you go from here, for pray that you would go humbly, you would go aware of the things that are fighting for the first place in your heart. And you would go seeking to restore God to that rightful place that King of your heart. Your are is missed.
4: Thank you, Hans.